The third reading is from Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. I want to take a few minutes to unpack the significance of those words from Scripture. I think before we do that, we're going to need some help, so let's ask for it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, earlier we asked you to draw near to us. We ask again. First, we celebrate that you have drawn near. One of the ways you draw near to us You speak truth. You speak truth through prophets and apostles. Their words are written down so that we can know truth from you and about you. Thank you. Now would you draw near again through your Holy Spirit and help us not just to understand what your word says, but to embrace it with all that we are, to rejoice in everything it teaches us about you. And give us readiness to be different, to be changed because of what you say to us through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you remember 1996 well enough to know what was the toy that everybody had to have in 1996. No fair using your phone. Google is the end of all fun questions, isn't it? It was Tickle Me Elmo, of course, right? Everybody needed to have a Tickle Me Elmo, but there weren't enough to go around, and only a few people could actually have them for Christmas. 2006, remember what it was? PlayStation 3. Sony, right? Um, It's been superseded by now, but it was the thing to have in 2006. Not enough to go around, so only a few people got to have them. I totally bombed at guessing in the first worship service tonight what the 2021 version of that toy would be. Everything I tried didn't work. You know, it wasn't Baby Yoda. At least, at least the, the people here at 5 o'clock didn't think it was Baby Yoda. Um, didn't think that it was necessarily going to be Super Mario Legos either. Although, I think if I was a kid, I would love some of those. Um, and I'm only learning about Squishmallows. Have you heard about those? 
right? Now, I'm sad that our kids are too old for these things because a Leonard the Lion would actually be pretty cool. But I'll leave it to you to decide what the toy of the year is for 2021. But every year there's something that's so in demand that it's not for everybody. It's only for some people. It's only for the lucky ones who got there first or who have connections. You know, the people who know the delivery driver and can meet them in the alleyway and slip him a couple extra 20s. Um, it's only for the people who have a lot of money. I don't know if this is a true story, but there's a story out there that in 1996, someone paid $7,100 for a Tickle Me Elmo, right? You start paying $7,100 for a toy, and there just aren't that many of us that can have it. It's only for a few. It's only for extremely wealthy people if it's 7100 bucks to get one. Um, in 2006, when the PlayStation 3 came out, there were shootings, there were fights, There's even a story, again, you don't believe everything you hear, right? I don't know if this really happened. But there's a story that that at one place, the the line was so deep, and a person back in the line thought they were going to run out of these PlayStations before they got to him. He started eliminating some of the competition by handing out candy that he had put poison in. I say poison, laxatives. to make sure that he would win, to make sure that he would get it. Is the coming of Jesus that kind of thing? Is it only for a few people? Is it only for people who have enough money? Is it only for people who are ruthless enough to do anything to win? Is it only for the lucky ones, the ones who were first? Is the coming of Jesus a different kind of thing? Luke is telling us the answer in these first few verses of chapter 2. He's telling us that the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and everything it represents is for everyone. How do we know? A couple of ways. Here's the first way. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. We're told that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, verse 4, and therefore, when a decree went out from Caesar that everybody should register in a census, it was related to collecting taxes, need to know how much property everybody owns so we can know how much tax everyone owes, keep the records straight, keep the empire moving. And uh, so go back to the place of your ancestry. For Joseph, that was, Luke says, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's supposed to ring a bell for us. It's supposed to mean something because this is Luke chapter 2. It's supposed to remind us of something in Luke chapter 1. When Gabriel, the angel, came to say to Mary, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him Jesus, Gabriel also said something about David. Here's what he said. 
You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. David was a great king, but not the greatest king, not the ultimate king. God has promised another king. And and when you know the story of the Bible, you know that kings are those who give life and safety. Kings protect and defend. Kings ward off death. Kings make sure that everyone in the kingdom is provided for so that they're not just scraping by, they're flourishing. Kings give, well, the biblical language would be things like righteousness and justice and peace. We might say things like joy. We might say things like rest. That's what kings give. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. He is that coming king. And that means that to get those things that you long for, the things that God longs for you to have, you don't have to toil and toil and toil to get them. They're not just for the people who can work the hardest and earn them. Joy and rest and peace and flourishing are not just for those who win the competition. They're not just for ruthless people who will do anything to win. You can rest because God has sent a king who will secure those things and then give them to his people as gifts. One day he will return and give those gifts perfectly, completely, in their fullest form. Until then, he gives us foretastes of those gifts. We can begin to know joy and rest and peace and justice in this world as subjects of King Jesus. We begin to know something that he's going to give in an even greater degree when he returns. The coming of Jesus is for everybody, not just for those who work hardest, not just for those who win, not just for those who are strong. It's for everybody. How do we know? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But Jesus was also born in Bethlehem, the peasant village. That's another way that we know the coming of Jesus and all that it represents is for everyone, not just for a select few. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is a peasant village. There are a whole lot of reasons I love the Bible. I'm just going to name one right now it's beautiful literature. Now, sometimes we don't think of it that way because we're like, hmm, other books are literature, the Bible is different. Or, you know, the Bible's a book of rules and rules and literature don't live on the same shelf for most of us. The Bible is great literature. It is well-written, well-crafted. It's told with artistry. And these seven verses do something really incredible in terms of artistry. If you follow the geography 
the center of gravity of the story starts in one place and then it moves and ends somewhere else. Now, you and I might not feel that completely. And one of the reasons we don't is because we're not as close to the original culture to, to understand everything that's going on. So let's unpack it a little bit. Um, one scholar kind of compares this to taking a diamond on a ring that, that gets dirty and, and, and it gets kind of fuzz, lint, grime on it, and, and you have to knock all that stuff off so you can see its original beauty every once in a while. And we can do that. We'll start with this phrase in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out. Where did it go out from? Well, Luke doesn't have to say it went out from Rome because everyone reading the book he wrote in the first century would know that already. It went out from Rome. A decree went out that all the world should be registered. There is somebody living in Rome who claims to command our resources for the purposes of his kingdom. Who has that right and where will we find that kind of person? Well, the Roman Empire had an answer to that. Caesar has that right and we'll find him in Rome. And if he says everybody's got to go to their town of ancestry and get ready to give money so that my purposes for my empire can continue, then everybody's got to do it. Because he claims to have that kind of authority to be able to tell everyone under his dominion, your resources exist to further my kingdom priorities. Well, who is this person? Where do we find him? We find him in Rome. This decree went out from a palace. It went out from the mightiest city and the mightiest empire on the face of the earth at that time. It went out from Caesar Augustus. His name Augustus means praiseworthy. It's the sort of word you would use in the first century to describe a god. This decree is going out from someone who is fabulously wealthy and famous and powerful. And then the story shifts. And we're not in Rome anymore. We wind up somewhere closer to Israel, but not quite. We wind up in Syria. Luke mentions a census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we're still talking about the Roman Empire, powerful, wealthy rulers like Quirinius, appointed by the emperor, but we've shifted away from Rome. We're in Syria. And now we take another shift. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. And things, things shift again. He leaves there and goes to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And now we are a million miles away from Rome. We are in a peasant village. Famous people live in Rome. 
Powerful people live in Rome. People who have a lot of wealth live in Rome. And if you want to benefit from Caesar's empire and his kingdom, you got to be close to him. In fact, the more like him you are, the more you'll benefit. The more wealthy, famous, and powerful you are, the better it will turn out for you in the Roman Empire. But we're so far away from that now. We're in Bethlehem. We're in this tiny peasant village in Judea. And if you stand in Bethlehem, you can look north six and a half miles and see Jerusalem, where some wealthy people lived in the first century, where some beautiful buildings have been built by powerful kings. People of influence were there, but you're not there. You're in Bethlehem, just a tiny little farming village. Have you looked seven miles to the east? You could see a fortress palace built by King Herod called the Herodian. He had slaves build a mountain of earths so, so that his fortress would be in a high place overlooking everything else. You could look and see where famous people lived, but you're not there. You're in Bethlehem. This is a town where people live a day-to-day existence in the first century. There are no banks. You don't have money saved up. You, you produce food for one day, and you might have enough for the next day. But it's kind of a day-to-day, constantly on the brink of starvation if there's a bad crop. Of, of desperate poverty if the wrong relative dies at the wrong moment that's where we are that's where Jesus was born in Bethlehem a tiny peasant village Luke narrows the focus even more he's not just focused on Bethlehem is he? he's focused on one family Joseph and Mary, and then on one baby, a little boy, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Now, for a moment, I'm going to do a grinchy thing, and I'm going to tell you that the traditional version of the Christians of the Christmas story is not accurate doesn't fit the details of what Luke is telling us here but as we unpack that we'll see even greater evidence that the coming of Jesus was for everybody not only was Jesus born in a tiny peasant village he was born in a peasant home Now, the traditional story says you know, he's born in a stable. And the tra- traditional story usually would run something like this. Mary's on the donkey saying, oh, Joseph, hurry, the baby's about to come. You know, any minute now, so hurry up. And we rush into Bethlehem, and there's no place to go. Oh, thankfully, there's an inn. And let's check, you know, the no vacancy sign is on. There are no rooms in the inn. So maybe a grumpy innkeeper or maybe a kindly old innkeeper, depending on which version of the story you like best, says there's a barn out back or there's a barn out back. And so they go in the stable and, you know, an hour later, Jesus is born. Great. 
But here's the thing. The Mideast is famous even today and would have been then for hospitality. Pregnant women don't show up in a peasant village and find no place to stay. Now, secondly, if Joseph is of the house and lineage of David, then he shows up in his ancestral hometown and says, I'm part of the family. So now we got two good reasons for any number of homes in the, in the town to open themselves up and say, your family stay with us. She's having a baby, stay with us. Now, also, there's a little detail that they got there way before the baby was born, uh, right? We just have to read carefully. Verse 6, and while they were there, literally the text says, the, day, the, the days of her childbirth came. Right, so not the hours or minutes, but, but, but the days. Like they, they were already there for a while, and, and then the baby came. Where were they staying? Well, they were staying, it looks like they were staying in a typical peasant house. This, the text says there was no place for them in the inn. The word for inn, kataluma, can also be translated guest room. That's the way it's translated in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus sends his apostles out to look for a place to celebrate Passover. Go find a, a guest room where we can celebrate this meal together. There's another word for inn, and Luke uses that in, in um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Big busy road, there's an inn on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's no big busy road going through Bethlehem. It is very unlikely that there was an inn in that room, in, in that town. Luke never said there was. He said there was a kataluma, a guest room, and a peasant house, which would have been a lot like this. Use your imagination for a minute. This is the main family room right here. And the guest room might be on the other side of the wall in the back of the house, the family room. And it's just for guests. The family never uses it. Because remember, hospitality is so important. Or the guest room might be on the roof up above us. But in a tiny peasant home, one room for the whole family, there would have been steps leading down to another level. Like this. And at night, we go open this door and we bring all our animals in. And they would stay down here. We wouldn't let them come up the steps into the house with us. Right? They stay down here at night and, and we, we stay up here. And um, why do we bring them in at night? Because we're peasants. We live day to day. We don't have much. If one of our animals is stolen in the night, we will be ruined financially. We're that close to destitute poverty every day. Also, they're warm at night. Their body heat keeps our house warm. How do they, how do they eat? Well, it's a stone house. We carve depressions in the stone up here and put their food there. So the taller animals, like oxen, could stand down there and eat up here. Shorter animal, like sheep, we might have to build a, 
a manger, a feed trough, and put it down on that lower level. It's very likely that that's the kind of home that Jesus was born in. That Mary, like every peasant mother would have in the first century, wraps her baby in these strips of cloth and, and lays him in the feed trough because there's no room for them in the guest room of the house. Why? Well, maybe other family who had come to town to register for the census were staying back there. Jesus came for everybody. He, he didn't show up in a place like Rome to say, hey, Caesar, you've, you've got it right. You know, the, the richer somebody is, the more influential, the more powerful, um, the more they'll benefit from this kingdom. That's a good idea, but I think I can do it better than you. Jesus is just kind of Rome 2.0. No. Jesus came for everybody. His, his, his birth says, you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be powerful. You don't have to be the winner. You don't have to be the one who's ahead. You, you can be poor and benefit from my coming. You, you can be that close to starvation. You can need animals' body heat to keep you warm at night and still benefit from my kingdom. That's the kind of kingdom God has sent his son to establish. Not a kingdom that's only for wealthy people or powerful people or strong people. He came for everybody. Jesus' coming can benefit everyone because from the very first moment of his life, he is both God in human flesh and impoverished human baby. He is both eternal king and peasant. He is both mighty savior and one who needs thin strips of cloth and the body heat of animals to keep him warm every night. Jesus didn't come only for the lucky few who could be first in line. He didn't come just for people who could afford 7,100 bucks for the Tickle Me Elmo. He didn't come just for ruthless people who are willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead in the line. He came for everybody who would humble themselves and stop fighting to try to get everything we want through our own effort and rest and trust Him to give us what we really need. Eternal life 
a life that's full of more joy than we could imagine, a life that is full of a kind of flourishing and prosperity forever that we can't imagine. For us, flourishing prosperity almost assumes that someone has very little and is doing without so that others can have much. Jesus is not that kind of king. He didn't come to start that kind of kingdom. He was born in Bethlehem, city of David, peasant village. You trust him to be your king. You trust him to give you what you really need. Even if it means you have to let go of some of the things you want. Do you trust him in that way? I hope that you do. I hope you'll trust him more now that you hear one more way what he's really like. Who he really is. Who he came to serve. If you don't trust him yet, why not? What are you waiting for? Life is better in Bethlehem than it is in Rome. Jesus is the only one who has the right to command our resources for the purposes of his kingdom. And we won't find him in Rome, the center of power and wealth. Where will we find him? in a tiny peasant village in a small, ordinary peasant home lying in a manger. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm 51 I first knew you when I was 16. That was a long time. That's long enough to lose my sense of excitement and joy about who you are. Many of us in this room are in the same place. But tonight, you can restore our joy, our excitement, our wonder at the glory of who you are. What God makes himself poor so that others could have rich and full life. Foretaste now the fullness forever. Increase our joy in you, Lord Jesus. And make our hearts beat with your own. We pray in your name. Amen.